0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with revelations of atrocities committed by retreating Russian troops in Ukraine with 300 civilians found on the outskirt of Kiev murdered, many bound and tied shot execution style. Joining us is Rebecca Hamilton, a professor of law at American University's Washington College of Law, where she teaches criminal law, national security law, and international law. She previously was a legal correspondent for Reuters and covered the civil war in Sudan, serving as a lawyer in the prosecutorial division of the International Criminal Court, working on cases in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Central African Republic, Uganda, and Sudan, and recently served in the Office of Special Operations Low-Intensity Conflict in the Department of Defense. Her latest book is Fighting for Darfur, Public Action and the Struggle to Stop Genocide, and we will discuss her article at the Washington Post, How the World Can Prosecute Putin for Going to War. Then we'll look into tools the United States government has but is not using to stop the spread of Russian disinformation contained in a 1937 law the Foreign Agents Registration Act, FARA. Originally created to counter Nazi propaganda and later Soviet propaganda, its provisions to label propaganda such as RT and Sputnik as propaganda remain to be enforced, while giant Silicon Valley platforms like Google, up until the Ukraine war, have been useful idiots for the Kremlin. Joining us is L. Gordon Krovitz, a former publisher, editorial board member, and opinion columnist for the Wall Street Journal, and the co-CEO of NewsGuard, which rates news websites based on their journalistic reliability. We'll discuss his article at Politico, U.S. law holds a tool to counter Putin's propaganda, but officials aren't using it. Then finally, with two fired workers from an Amazon warehouse in Staten Island creating a pop-up union, then winning a David versus Goliath fight to unionize their former workplace. We will speak with Harold Myerson, one of the nation's best-known progressive columnists and editor-at-large of The American Prospect. He also writes regularly about California politics for the Los Angeles Times and other national publications, and he joins us to discuss his latest article at The American Prospect, A Generational Workers' Revolt Hits Its Stride. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising, relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org/slash/donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org, where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as five dollars a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Rebecca Hamilton, who's a professor of law at American University's Washington College of Law, where she teaches criminal law, national security law, and international law. She previously was a legal correspondent for Reuters and covered the civil war in Sudan, serving as a lawyer in the prosecutorial division of the International Criminal Court, working on cases in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Central Africa Republic, Uganda, and Sudan, and recently served in the Office of Special Operations Low-Intensity Conflict in the Department of Defense, And her latest book is Fighting for Darfur, Public Action and the Struggle to Stop Genocide. And she has an article at the Washington Post, How the World Can Prosecute Putin for Going to War. Welcome to Background Briefing, Rebecca Hamilton.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So since uh, you wrote your article in the Washington Post, Rebecca, of course, we've had these hideous revelations of what appear to be, you know, at least 300 civilians massacred in a town on the outskirts of uh, Kiev as the Russians withdraw from the town. And it's prompted President Biden to—well, he's already accused Putin of being a war criminal, but he went on to say today, he is a war criminal, this guy is brutal, and what's happening in Bucha is outrageous, and everyone's seen it. And I think it's a war crime, and he should be held accountable. That's quoting Biden today. So will this give impetus to what you were suggesting earlier in terms of the crime of aggression, which is a crime against the UN Charter?
1: So I think it's important to disentangle the two things a little bit. I think it builds political momentum for accountability in general. Um, but it's important to say, and and I think... Um, President Biden muddied the waters a little bit for, for folks today with his remarks, it's important to say that we already have a court that has jurisdiction over war crimes. So the International Criminal Court is already up and running its investigation uh, into war crimes being committed in Ukraine that would absolutely cover um, what we've seen in the, in the images coming out of, of Bukha today. Um, so that is already underway. There is a separate question about also getting Putin for the crime of aggression, which is a crime that the ICC doesn't have jurisdiction over in this case and for listeners the the basic difference between the two is that war crimes are the crimes that are committed once you're in the conflict itself. Um, The crime of aggression which I would also love to see President Putin be held accountable for is the decision to go to war in the first place Um, and that's what we would need an additional tribunal set up in order to prosecute.
0: So when the president said today, we have to gather the information, we have to continue to provide Ukraine with the weapons that they need to continue the fight. So you've been in these war zones in Darfur, etc. How do you gather evidence in, uh, in, under these conditions? It's obviously not easy, right, if there's a war going on.
1: Yeah, it's not easy at all. I mean, the the one thing that um, investigators have operating in their favour um, that we didn't have, for example, when we were trying to build the case for atrocities in Darfur, is that they have the support of the government on whose territory these crimes are taking place. Ukraine said to the International Criminal Court, we are granting you jurisdiction. We want to see these crimes prosecuted. And so they will facilitate access for um, ICC investigators to get onto the scene of a crime. Whereas often in, in previous situations, you've had the government itself stopping people from getting in to do documentation. Um, so that's helpful, but but even so, it's obviously extraordinarily difficult circumstances, and there are security and safety issues for everyone, not least of which um, potential victims and witnesses that investigators may wish to speak to.
0: But in terms of uh, what you experienced in Darfur, the Janjaweed militia were a, a kind of proxy for the government, I guess. And I'm not sure in what's just happened in Bukha outside of Kyiv is the regular Russian military or maybe Syrians or Chechens or the Wagner group. They have all kinds of mercenaries and so-called volunteers. So how do the rules of war apply to regular militaries? Do they? How are those distinctions made between regular militaries and militias?
1: So... Really anyone um, that falls under the command and control of um, the Russian military apparatus um, is is understood to be uh, on on Russia's side in the war and, and as a combatant on the Russian side. Um, you've got a couple of different levels at which these prosecutions can happen. You can think about it in terms of the individual perpetrators. So presumably with the images we've seen, um, it, it certainly seems that civilians were executed, Um, so the soldiers or, or militia that were pulling the trigger, they can be held directly responsible. But something like the International Criminal Court cares about um, prosecuting those who are most responsible. And so often that means not going for the foot soldiers, um, but going for their superiors. And so regardless of who the individual was that that sort of pulled the trigger, um, the question is, who is their superior commander? And and at the level of that commander, did they know or should they have known uh, that these crimes were happening um, and, and yet failed to do anything to prevent them? And that's the level that the ICC is likely to be most interested in.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Rebecca Hamilton, who's a professor of law at American University's Washington College of Law, where she teaches criminal law, national security law, and international law. She previously was a legal correspondent for Reuters and covered the civil war in Sudan, serving as a lawyer in the prosecutorial division of the International Criminal Court, working on cases in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Central African Republic, Uganda, and Sudan and recently served in the Office of the Special Operations Low-Intensity Conflict in the Department of Defense. And her latest book is Fighting for Darfur, Public Action and the Struggle to Stop Genocide. And she has an article at the Washington Post, How the World Can Prosecute Putin for Going to War. And the ICC, the International Criminal Court, has an ongoing investigation in Ukraine, does it not?
1: It does Indeed.
0: And there are other investigations as well going on, or at least groups of one led by former British Prime Minister Gordon Brown. They've called for a special tribunal for the punishment of the crimes of aggression against Ukraine, modelled on the U- Nuremberg Tribunal. And then you've got another group, the Elders, a group of independent global leaders founded by Nelson Mandela. So tell us what's going on there in terms of these three forums that are underway or inquiries underway?
1: Sure. So the thing about the ICC, it has jurisdiction over war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide, but in this particular situation, it doesn't have jurisdiction over the crime of aggression. So it can and will prosecute all the crimes that are happening in the midst of the conflict. What it can't get at is the preparation, planning and execution of the resort to war in the first place. That's the crime of aggression. And it's a leadership crime, which is why you're hearing um, the calls from from Gordon Brown, from the others about the prosecution of, of Putin and other senior Russian leaders um, that would need a separate forum, different from the ICC, to get at that crime of aggression. And what's being discussed in the international legal community at the moment is what is the best forum through which to do that, Is it um, the model that is being pushed out of of the UK in particular, of something that is akin to a Nuremberg like tribunal? Is it maybe a a combination between Ukraine and the UN General Assembly that creates an international tribunal specifically for the purposes of of prosecuting aggression? These are different models that are being discussed at the moment. But what what they have in common is that they're all trying to get at this international crime of aggression that the ICC can't get at.
0: So... There seems, though, to be a kind of disconnect here with President Biden openly calling Putin a war criminal and then on the Russian side because of the ubiquitous control of the media by the state and by Putin. Putin is more popular than ever, my understanding is. I mean, he's as popular as George W. Bush was when he toppled Saddam Hussein. So is there any way to weaponize moral outrage to get to the Russian people to break that support and and let them know obviously they, they have complete delusions about what's going on in this what they what's referred to as a special military operation as opposed to what President Zelensky says is, is a genocidal onslaught.
1: So I think it's a really difficult information environment and I think it's worth highlighting um, that there are extraordinary, in fact, numbers of, of Russian people who are managing to get outside sources of information and have been protesting at, at grave risk to their own um, security and, and even life. Um, so there, there is that protest that is, is happening there, although obviously extremely difficult um, to, to do under the, the circumstances of control that the Russian state has. But I think, you know, among those of us that are advocating for accountability, um a piece of that rationale is is that you are building an accurate record of what happened that will be valuable um to to not only Ukrainians but but also Russians in the future, um perhaps when they're in a in a different information environment than they are trapped in right now.
0: So it's a bit ironic, is it not, Rebecca, that you have President Biden being so outspoken. He's obviously personally outraged and he's been getting criticism because of his blunt language and maybe the extent to which some argue that he's burning bridges in terms of any future negotiation with Putin, which of course is fairly unlikely at this point. But the United States is not a signatory to the International Criminal Court. So isn't that a kind of disconnect?
1: Yes, it's a, it's a huge problem uh, for the United States, and um and I think that's exactly why you, you saw the sort of confusing language calling for a war crimes tribunal when there is in fact already um, an international court, the ICC, that is that is prosecuting exactly these war crimes. Um, I, you know i'm going to be watching the biden administration for for changes in language on this um i don't imagine we're going to see the, the us joining the icc anytime soon but i think what we're seeing unfold in ukraine is yet another argument why it is in fact in the long-term interests um, of the United States to support the work of the ICC, um, particularly if you, you have your president coming out and, and making all the right noises in terms of, of international criminal accountability. Um, they should be supporting the court that is already up and running and, and prepared to prosecute these crimes.
0: So to the question of how do you weaponize moral outrage, is that a realistic prospect. Do
1: you mean among the Russian population?
0: No, I think to sort of get a kind of critical mass of moral suasion across the globe. I mean, it's very strange to me that countries like uh, India, for example, are not condemning Putin at all, if not this, you know, arguably supporting him. And Of course, we understand China's position. But it does seem that there's a sort of battle going on around the world, you know, for hearts and minds in terms of people facing up to the reality of what's happening in Ukraine.
1: So I think my perspective may be a a little different on this in that um, having seen a number of conflicts play out outside of Europe, I am taken aback by the degree of political will, um, the uniformity, comparatively speaking, of the moral outrage that we're seeing in response to Ukraine. I have not seen this speed clarity and uniformity um of political will and calls for accountability in any other situation that i've worked on um and so you know i think that that is absolutely there uh, in this situation to a sort of unparalleled degree. if anything, um I'm finding it really difficult to have conversations with with friends and colleagues in Syria and in Sudan um, who, despite facing egregious atrocities, have never seen this degree of unanimity unanimity um, from the international community in supporting their calls for justice
0: so is that to say that, is there a racial component to this because Europeans are being slaughtered? I think so. Well, that is an unfortunate fact, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's, I don't think we're, for the most part, we're not talking about, you know, intentional racism at a, at an individual level. And I want to be really clear that I think Ukraine absolutely deserves and demands um, the level of of moral outrage that we're all feeling. It's just that there are also a lot of conflicts outside Europe um, that merit the same level of attention and the trouble is that that we have this structural racism built into the international system.
0: So just in the last couple of minutes, Rebecca Hamilton, Russia's Foreign Minister Lavrov is basically dismissing this as as fake news as he did the bombing of the maternity hospital which he claimed was staged. So recently the International Criminal Court acting with unprecedented speed ordered Russia to suspend its military operations in Ukraine. So who can get to uh, Lavrov and Putin because Putin is a is a trained lawyer and he likes to wrap his decisions in legalisms even if what he does is illegal?
1: <laughs> yes. Um, so I should say it, it's the ICJ uh, in a in a different case that, that has ordered um, the suspension of military operations and Russia is obviously not paying attention to that and no one really expected that they would. But that's not to say that it's not important. Uh, These international courts that are coming out with decisions and judgments are continuing to build on that political will that is there and, and will strengthen it over time. One of the things that we always see in a conflict situation is that there is a huge level of attention at the initial moment of crisis and then that attention falls off over time. But every time that you have a president, a court, um, make a a decision that is condemning uh, the violence that we are seeing unfold in Ukraine, um, that, that keeps it on the radar of journalists, of citizens and continues to build political will. In terms of actually getting any of these guys in the dock, um, it is not going to be a short-term project. And and international criminal justice never is. But you need to do the documentation in the moment so that you secure the evidence that could otherwise be degraded over time. You build the case, you issue the arrest warrant, and even if it is 5, 10, 15 years later, eventually they end up having their day In court, And it is this week at the International Criminal Court where we're seeing the first ever prosecution of the atrocities that happened in Darfur 20 years ago. So it's taken all that time to get a Janjaweed leader um, in the dock in The Hague. But eventually it happens, and it can only happen if you start doing the work right now.
0: So just in the last minute then, Rebecca, could Lavrov be arrested if he shows up to speak at the UN in New York?
1: Uh, and the UN has a different set of um, immunity regulations around what you can do with arrest warrants. Certainly, if he, he travels broadly to other countries, um, if there's an arrest warrant out for him, I don't think there will be an arrest warrant out for him yet. I think it's too soon. Um, but, but Putin, Lavrov, all of the senior Russian leadership should be concerned about international travel generally going forward.
0: Well, Rebecca Hamilton, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Rebecca Hamilton, who's a professor of law at American University's Washington College of Law, where she teaches criminal law, national security law and international law. And she previously was a legal correspondent for Reuters and covered the civil war in Sudan and served as a lawyer in the prosecutorial division of the International Criminal Court working on cases in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Central African Republic, Uganda, and Sudan, and recently served in the Office of the Special Operations Low-Intensity Conflict in the Department of Defense. And her latest book is Fighting for Darfur, Public Action and the Struggle to Stop Genocide. And she has an article in the Washington Post, How the World Can Prosecute Putin for Going to War. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into tools the US government has but is not using to stop the spread of Russian disinformation. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is L. Gordon-Krovitz, who is a former publisher, editorial board member, and opinion columnist for The Wall Street Journal, and the co-CEO of NewsGuard, which rates news websites based on their journalistic reliability. And he has an article at Politico, U.S. law holds a tool to counter Putin's propaganda, but officials aren't using it. Welcome to Background Briefing. L. Gordon Krobitz.
2: Pleased to be with you. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And it's so obvious that propaganda works. I mean, Putin is more popular than ever. And I suppose you can make some kind of comparison to Putin's popularity with George W. Bush's popularity at the time of the toppling of Saddam Hussein. And obviously, the propaganda control and the media control that Orban has in Hungary explains his landslide victory as well yesterday. So are we sort of, well, I don't think we're unilaterally disarmed, but we don't use propaganda in the way that the Russians do. But is there a way, as you pointed out in your article, at Politico, to at least defend ourselves?
2: Right. I think there's only so much we can do within Russia. Vladimir Putin is been extraordinarily successful in crafting the domestic media to his purposes, closing down independent media, using state media quite aggressively. To me, that's not surprising. That's what despots do. What was shocking to me when I began to look into it was how successful the Russian government has been over the past 10 years, 15 years in insinuating its propaganda into Western audiences in the States, the rest of North America, Europe, Latin America. And it did it in a very um, conscious and transparent way. We we, we, we kind of let them get away with it. And they were particularly gifted at using the internet um, in order to distribute disinformation directly aimed at Western audiences. It included disinformation about Ukraine, of course, and the run-up to the Russian invasion, but on many other topics as well. And there are several Silicon Valley companies that were unwitting um, allies in that effort. Um, I think the Soviets might have called them useful idiots. And our U.S. government as my article said, has, on the books, a law exactly aimed at this problem from a different generation that, for years, has gone all but uninformed.
0: It's so you're insane. talking about FARA, right? The Foreign Agent Registration Act. So tell us about how that was set up to counter Nazi propaganda and then later Soviet propaganda.
2: Yeah, the FARA Act, the Foreign Agents Registration Act, has a fascinating history. It was drafted in the 1930s in reaction to efforts by the Nazi government in Germany to influence American public opinion. The Nazi government was quite active in sending pamphlets and magazines, booklets, trying to justify itself. And of course, there was some support uh, in the U.S., and the Nazi government did what it could to encourage it. Congress passed a law in the late 1930s, not based on censorship, you know, which is not an American value, but based on disclosure, which is an American value. And the law says that for hostile foreign agents operating in the U.S., there needs to be disclosure so that Americans would at least know who was feeding them the news. So in the context of propaganda from Nazi Germany, later the Soviet Union, I would certainly argue now from Putin's Russia, and by the way, President Xi's China, that the law should be enforced. And what the law said was that um, whoever was distributing foreign propaganda from hostile countries should include uh, disclosure of that fact. And so in the 1930s, when the technology was pamphlets, not uh, YouTube videos, but pamphlets, the pamphlets came with a sticker that said, uh, We are distributing Nazi uh, content, um, and it's there for all to see. And those of us of a certain age who might have read Soviet Life magazine in the Cold War will remember seeing stickers and disclosures saying, this is being distributed uh, by such and such a magazine distributor, but the content that you're reading is being produced in Moscow. And that's, you know, I think quite useful for consumers of news to know who's feeding them the news. The the congressman who introduced uh, the law originally Uh, said that the passage of this bill, this is his words, the passage of this bill will label such propaganda just as the law requires us to label poison. Um, And the House Judiciary Committee at that time uh, issued a report, and their wording was the spotlight of pitiless publicity will serve as a deterrent to the spread of pernicious propaganda. In other words, So long as Americans knew where the information was coming from, they'd be able to use their own news judgment to discount it, to to understand where it was coming from. That concept has been wholly lost on the Internet. And into that vacuum marched Vladimir Putin and millions, tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars worth of effort Behind outfits like uh, one that was originally called Russia Today. It began as a broadcaster. It became RT and instead of focusing on broadcast, it focused on YouTube. And it was so successful on YouTube. It was the first news source to reach 1 billion views. Um, And more recently became the first uh, news source to reach 10 billion views larger than. CNN, larger than the New York Times, larger than any other news operation. And it did that by understanding how YouTube operated. So RT, in its early years, invested in clever videos about natural disasters, about car crashes, about mice chasing cats. And only ever, every so often, would insert a video about Vladimir Putin being Not such a bad guy. And Google, which of course owned YouTube, uh, not only allowed this distribution to happen without Westerners having any concept that RT was from Russia. When RT became the first site to reach the 1 billion mark, a senior YouTube executive went on RT in order to congratulate Putin's RT, referring to it as authentic and without agenda or propaganda. Shocking words in at the time and certainly in retrospect. And so we had the, the, the millions of people in the US and in Europe subscribing to the RT channel on YouTube, again, having no idea that it was coming from Russia. And at a moment like this, After the invasion by Russia of Ukraine, of course, all of the Russian disinformation outlets, RT, TASS, Sputnik News, others, are wholly focused on trying to justify the invasion. And they, you know, I think one way of thinking about Russia in particular is that disinformation has been an agent of their foreign policy going back to Lenin and certainly Stalin and vladimir putin is simply following a long russian tradition what's new is that silicon valley allowed it to happen and that the u.s government failed to enforce this fara law which was designed for this precise purpose of requiring disclosure so that americans would have some idea of who's feeding them the news
0: and again, I'm speaking with L. Gordon Krovitz, who's a former publisher, editorial board member, and opinion columnist for the Wall Street Journal, and the co-CEO of NewsGuard, which rates news websites based on their journalistic reliability. He has an article at Politico, U.S. law holds a tool to counter Putin's propaganda, but officials aren't using it. So is there any coincidence here, the fact that the co-founder of Google, Sergey Brin, is Russian? Is that a factor?
2: Oh gosh, I don't think so. I I, I have no reason to think that. Mm-hmm. I, I I don't I don't think it's anything like that. I think it's it's much simpler, which is that the Silicon Valley uh, technology companies have terrible news judgment. They're, you know they're not news companies; they're technology companies, and by the way, they're technology companies that are not held liable for the most part for what appears on their platform. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with Section 230 of the 1996 Telecommunications Act that essentially gave immunity from liability to the platforms. And 25 years later, shockingly, an industry that was born without um, liability acts as if it's not accountable. So I, I don't think there's anything nefarious about it. I think it's just... Terrible, terrible news judgment. And it's one reason why the FARO law, by requiring disclosure of the distributors, doesn't count on the distributor's goodwill. Um, it, 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 it relies on the law to require distributors to uh, make clear to their audience, in, in YouTube's case, the viewers, um, who's feeding them the news. And the way that should work on the internet it's not exactly the same as as gluing in a sticker onto Soviet Life magazine or onto a Nazi pamphlet from the 1930s, but it's much easier on the internet. There's plenty of space, and, and what should appear is a quite detailed explanation of what RT is, what TASS is, what Sputnik News is, on the Chinese side of what Xinhua is, et cetera, And that should be on every piece of content, whether somebody sees it in their Facebook feed or a Twitter feed or on YouTube or somebody sends a link by email. The, the, the way the FARA law was written in the 1930s, it was aimed at disclosure, which means making sure that the consumers of the news have instant access to whatever information they need to make up their minds about whether to believe something or not believe something. And there's a, a great opportunity now, I think, to learn from the mistakes of the last decade or so, and to make sure that there is that kind of disclosure uh, so that the Russians and the Chinese and others can't uh, take advantage of our open Internet in order to corrupt our news environment.
0: And the work that you do at NewsGuard with the, these nutrition labels, is that a model that could be followed with putting some teeth in FARA?
2: Yes. And in fact, Microsoft um, provides NewsGuard ratings and nutrition labels to its users, as do others. And what that provides is um, uh, a rating based on credibility and transparency for All of the news and information sites that account for 95% of engagement, so many, many, many news and information websites. And those nutrition labels go into great detail on the Russian, Chinese, other disinformation sites on why they score poorly in areas like um, disclosing a point of view, disclosing ownership repeatedly publishing false content, reporting responsibly or irresponsibly. And by the way, why they're quite different from the BBC or the Australian ABC or the Canadian CBC, which have independent charters and are editorially separate from their governments. That's not true of Russia or China or Iran. Um, And yet, to a news consumer on YouTube or looking at a Google search result, or a Twitter feed, these brands all look just the same. You know, who knows what RT stands for? It sounds like AP or Press Association. It sounds like a legitimate news operation when of course it's not.
0: But in terms of media literacy, and there are some moves underway to teach media literacy in schools, I'm, I'm sure how well that is going, but it's extraordinary to think that we are a country in which there is no consensus about what is real and what is true, and that there's this phenomenon of, of reality shopping, where people, you know, liberals go to MSNBC, conservatives to Fox, Christians to Christian broadcasting, and how do you recreate a kind of consensus about what is true, I mean, what is real? It's, it's almost like feelings have trumped facts in our current environment. I, 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 to
2: to some significant degree, actually blame um, humans' inability so far to deal with technology. In other words, you know, so many people now get their news through Facebook based on what their friends happen to share with them. The brands are not as well understood as they were in the earlier era, where people knew exactly what each brand stood for. The result of that is people see crazy news in their feed. Some of them believe it or think it might be true. Others figure it probably isn't true, but it tends to undermine trust in all media, including the most responsible media. So at NewsGuard, by by trying to explain to consumers this is the nature of this particular site, explaining if it repeatedly publishes false content, we're trying to do two things. One is arm consumers with information about sites that are not terribly reliable for one reason or another they could be russian disinformation sites they could be one of the thousands of healthcare hoax sites they're sites that will sell you a monthly subscription to peach pits to cure your cancer it's a very big business multi-billion dollar business Um, and also uh, to encourage consumers if they see a green icon and a high score from NewsGuard to say whether I agree with the point of view of this particular outlet or not. I'm told what the particular point of view is, but I'm also told this uh, site, it may be left-wing, it may be right-wing, it may be aiming to be down the middle, but as so long as it doesn't publish false content, I can take it for what it's for what it's worth. I think we've lost so much of that um, as an unintended consequence of the internet. We have so much choice, in terms of news and anybody can become a publisher. So I think we need, you know, news literacy tools, we need all of us to focus on the nature of the source to become, you know, skeptical consumers, uh, particularly on the Internet. And tools like the far law can help by mandating disclosure about the nature of of the sources.
0: Well, El Gordon-Krovitz, I thank you so much for joining us here today.
2: Ian, it's a pleasure. Thank you for your interest.
0: And again, I've been speaking with El Gordon-Krovitz, who's a former publisher, editorial board member, and opinion columnist for The Wall Street Journal, and the co-CEO of NewsGuard, which rates news websites based on their journalistic reliability. And he has an article at Politico, U.S. law holds a tool to counter Putin's propaganda, but officials aren't using it. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into how two fired workers from an Amazon warehouse in Staten Island created a pop-up union, then won a David versus Goliath fight to unionize their former workplace.
3: I'm sick and tired of hearing things From uptight, short-sighted, narrow minded hypocritics All I want is the truth Just give me some truth I've had it
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24/7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Harold Myerson, one of the nation's best-known progressive columnists and editor-at-large of The American Prospect. He also writes regularly about California politics for the Los Angeles Times and other national publications, and his latest article at The American Prospect is "A Generational Worker Revolt Hits Its Stride." Welcome to Background Briefing, Harold Myerson.
4: Good to be here, Ian.
0: And, Harold, you're writing about, of course, the Amazon JFK 8 site, a big warehouse on Staten Island, where two former employees pulled off this extraordinary uh, coup. I mean, Christian Smalls and his best friend, uh, Derek Palmer, they were both friends in the warehouse, and Smalls got fired and slimed and by the Amazon executives and... They basically spent $120,000, mostly raised through GoFundMe. And Amazon spent more than $4.3 million on anti-union consultants nationwide last year. So this is a David versus Goliath story, isn't it?
4: Oh, it's absolutely David versus Goliath. And and the more so because uh, the Amazon labor union that uh, uh, Smalls and Palmer set up, wasn't an affiliate of any existing union. It was sort of a pop-up, as it were, uh, in, in the phraseology of our time. Uh, and uh, you know, they managed to get uh, volunteer uh, organizers who were working in the uh, in the plant in in the warehouse. Uh, and uh, they ran a very smart campaign and campaign that uh, the workers recognized was really being uh, run by uh, their fellow workers uh, on behalf of their fellow workers. And they they handily won a victory, about 55 percent to 45 percent, which, all things considered, was uh, rightly the subject of general astonishment.
0: And of course, earlier in Bessemer, Alabama, there was an attempt to unionize a big Amazon fulfillment center there, which failed. So this is obviously causing heartburn at the executive suites at Amazon, isn't it?
4: I think it's probably causing heartburn at executive suites even beyond Amazon. I would also point out among the considerable differences between the experience of uh, the workers in the warehouse in Staten Island and the workers at the warehouse in uh, Bessemer, Alabama, is that uh, New York has a very hot labor market where there are definitely available jobs uh, for this uh, many of the people who are working inside the Amazon warehouse that pay uh, as much or better than what Amazon pays and doesn't uh, require uh, the kind of uh, body-breaking labor and uh, 24-hour, you know, 24/7 electronic surveillance that Amazon performs on its employees. Whereas in Bessemer, Alabama, um, the the sober fact is that Amazon actually pays better. uh, Given that this is sort of in the middle of uh, nowhere in Alabama, pays better. Alabama being one of six states, by the way, which has no minimum wage law of its own. uh, Pays, you know, the 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 jobs that the warehouse workers in Alabama hold uh, actually are among the better-paying jobs. Uh, that they could get. And so uh, it's a somewhat different terrain. It's obviously a different terrain politically, but it's a different terrain economically. However, look, Amazon pledges next day delivery uh, in virtually every major American city and therefore has warehouses in or near virtually every uh, American, uh, American city, which is where wages are rising. And so The potential for what happened in Staten Island exists, I think, in in probably hundreds of Amazon warehouses uh, in in metropolitan areas around the country.
0: So Amazon seemed to have a real, obviously they've had a long and well-documented hostility towards labor unions, but they've also seemed to run a kind of Orwellian big brother operation They've created a group called the Global Intelligence Program. It's a security group staffed by many uh, military veterans, and they're very proactive in rooting out any whiff of anybody that might organize. And, of course, in the case of Christian Smalls, he was fired very unjustly, saying that he had violated quarantine rules by attending a walkout over need to be protected against COVID. And then later... Once he was organizing this union, he brought some food to the break room at the warehouse and the, he was arrested. I don't know whether he got a police record, but this just goes to show how hardball Amazon is. What explains that? Where's this coming from? I mean, uh, Well,
4: this is actually, um, sad to say, more the norm than the exception uh, among American uh, employers who can afford to do the kind of thing that... Uh, Amazon did. I mean, Amazon is only the second largest employer. The largest employer, Walmart, has uh, basically a former military uh, employed up and down the line to keep workers in order uh, when uh, an- about a decade and a half ago, when the butchers in one Walmart in Texas, uh, you know, said they they were organizing a union. Walmart closed the meat department in that Walmart and then closed the meat department in every uh, every Walmart in Texas and the six surrounding states. Uh, and, you know, one of the things we've learned from the Starbucks uh, experience is that even corporations with some reputation for being socially responsible uh, hate unions. Uh, this is like, you know, this uh, the, the, this phobia in which uh, employers are really drifting away from what is becoming increasing public support for unions, which right now have the highest approval rating, according to the Gallup poll, uh, that unions have had in almost 60 years. Uh, and among millennials, and that's who works in places like Walmart and Amazon and Starbucks, among millennials, it has an approval rating of 77%. So you have, you know, the many against the few and the few uh, fortify themselves with, uh, you know, uh, military, with spies. You know, I mean, uh, when the CIO organized in the 1930s, the big challenge was getting a meeting of union supporters that wouldn't be infiltrated by spies. This is a long standing tradition of American employers and sad to say uh, pretty much every American corporation plays by, you know, goes by this playbook.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Harold Meyerson, who's one of the nation's best-known progressive columnists and editor at large of the American Prospect. He also writes regularly about California politics for the Los Angeles Times and other national publications. And his latest article at the American Prospect is "A Generational Worker Revolt Hits Its Stride." Now, just to finish up on Walmart, the nation's biggest employer, your article points out that nearly 20 years ago, the workers at a Walmart store in Quebec voted to unionize. And within six months, the company shut the store down. So that's
4: that's right. But, you know, Amazon is, as I suggested, in a kind of unusual position If they want to maintain their Uh, their calling card among uh, uh, corporate behemoths, which is we can get you next day delivery. They can't really shut down warehouses that service uh, the large American cities. And that's why, uh, you know, uh, I think the sort of thing which went on at the Staten Island warehouse uh, could be possible at uh, many, many other Amazon warehouses.
0: So let's talk about the growing appeal for unions amongst millennials. And you cite a Dartmouth College unionization of a dining <laughs> hall. <laughs> yeah, a that odd was story
4: graduates but- who, ha- who are putting themselves through Dartmouth in part by working uh, in the dining hall. Uh, they had their own little pop-up union. They uh, uh, demanded a vote. They got a vote uh, supervised by the National Labor Relations Board. And the vote was 52 to nothing in favor of going union. Uh, and I think, you know, when you look at millennials and Gen Zs and they look at the economy, uh, this is an understandable reaction. I mean, since the uh, economic uh, collapse of 2008, the generation that has most taken it on the chops uh, is uh, is the young, is the millennials and, uh, and, and now Gen Zers. They're, uh, they've gone into a job market. Uh, That until recently, uh, certainly underpaid workers and uh, uh, if they went to college, they're still saddled with uh, humongous levels of student debt. Uh, And it's been widely commented on that this is a generation among older millennials that isn't buying homes or doing the sort of thing that previous generations of Americans have done because they're too saddled with debt, because homes are too costly this is a generation that is the most pro-union generation either since the 1930s or ever, and I'm not sure which.
0: Well, of course, Henry Ford was an incredible reactionary and fought against the UAW, but at least he understood that you had to pay your workers enough to buy your product or their product. And this seems to be lost. I mean, the younger generation you're talking about, who are now pro-union... It seems, in a way, it's cruel that they grow up in the most materialistic society where they're barraged by advertisements and peer pressure to have the latest this, that, and the other, and yet they don't have the purchasing power. So,
4: Absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, so you, you can understand why uh, the sentiment is there, why the pressure is there. Amazon warehouses, according to a survey by the New York Times, have an annual employee turnover rate of 150%, uh, which is one reason why actually it's some more, somewhat more difficult to organize uh, an Amazon warehouse because by the time you get a worker upset about working conditions, that worker usually has decided to hell with it. He, uh, he or she is gone. So, uh, and, and Amazon counts on that. I mean, you know, it's, it's by design that Amazon has such a high turnover rate. They know the job is 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 back raking by the way i checked you know a, a couple years back before the pandemic the uh conference for the business roundtable passed a widely reported statement saying well we've been following you know the uh, creed of maximum shareholder value for 30 years here and we want to acknowledge that now we'll be taking our stakeholders into consideration and guess who signed that among the ceos who signed it none other than jeff bezos uh the uh, uh founding uh ceo chairman and still the largest shareholder in uh, in amazon uh and if there was ever an act of uh you know stratospheric hypocrisy uh and mendacity it's it's signing a statement like that and then deliberately choosing to treat the hundreds of thousands of people who work in his warehouses as uh, you know as robots uh, and if they take, you know, if robots don't need bathroom breaks, there's no reason why workers should either.
0: So, of course, Bezos has stepped down and his successor just got what, a pay package of, what, $212 million a year or something?
4: Yeah, nice work if you can get it, yes. And uh, at the same time that today's Wall Street Journal reports that the ever-rising level of CEO pay set a new record in 2021. Uh, so there you go.
0: Well, I'm just wondering about whether there's in the data that you're citing with the young millennials and Gen Zs, whether there is a a shift underway in America. I mean, is, does it have anything to do with the job market overall? This is the time when workers have more clout because they're much yes. more in demand.
4: Yes, it it has. It does have something to do with that because there, are, at this point. Uh, there are still uh, all these job openings uh from people who haven 't come back to work from the pandemic, and uh, it is uh, a sense of economic security that workers can uh, uh change uh change jobs and so that definitely uh helps an effort like uh, the one at the uh, amazon warehouse of course if the federal uh, if the federal reserve really slams on the brakes on the economy and raises interest rates up the wazoo then the job market doesn't look so bright and it'll be tougher. Uh, It'll be tougher. But in terms of millennials' uh, politics, let's remember they were the core of uh, the Bernie Sanders constituency. So the politics are there. And at the moment, the job market uh, makes it easier to, uh, you know, risk losing your job uh, by – uh, striking out and forming a union as well. So uh, for the moment, uh, some of the stars are aligned, as they have not been in a very long time.
0: So just in closing, Harold, do you think this, somebody's going to make a movie about Christian Smalls and his oh, best how buddy? Oh, could they not? Come on. Derek Palmer, <laughs> yeah. these two... Th- uh, you
4: know, this is, uh, this is Norma Ray on steroids, yeah. Uh, uh, two black I, men I, I in I their think...
0: 30s, I mean... Uh, yeah, took on the biggest company in the world, or one of the biggest companies yeah. in the world.
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's Norma Ray, it's Frank Capra, little man against the big system. Even though Capra was no radical, he certainly appreciated the appeal of a story like that, and he he would appreciate the appeal of a story like this.
0: And what does it say about the actual union, the warehouse union? I can't remember the exact title of it, but they were the ones that were behind the Bessemer attempt.
4: Well, that was one of many unions, the uh, retail wholesale department, uh, department store union. They're one of many unions that have tried to, uh, over the years, organize warehouses. Actually, the union that has most warehouses under contract is the Teamsters, which are under new leadership for the first time in more than 20 years. Uh, They got a new president uh, in late March. Uh, and the Teamsters have pledged many millions of dollars to unionize warehouses. So we'll see how all of this, all of this meshes together. On the West Coast, it's uh, a combination of the Teamsters and the Longshore Unions that have uh, unionized warehouses. But then you have this massive concentration of warehouses in what's called the Inland Empire, near uh, halfway between L.A. and San Bernardino. Where you've got more than a hundred thousand workers working in these warehouses, and they're non-union entirely. So there's there's a lot of work to be done in Amazon warehouses and in other warehouses.
0: So more pop-ups to to come.
4: <laughs> I would I would I would hope there are more pop-ups to come. Pop-ups so far seem to seem to be working pretty well.
0: Well, Harold Morrison, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it.
4: My pleasure, Ian.
0: And again, I'll be speaking with Harold Myerson, one of the nation's best-known progressive columnists and editor-at-large of The American Prospect. He also writes regularly about California politics for the Los Angeles Times and other national publications. And his latest article at The American Prospect is A Generational Worker Revolt Hits Its Stride. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The
3: guy that lived next door in 305 took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine.